Well, it's not the happiest week in baseball or any of the big sports, but let's try to have some fun anyway with some player analysis and commentary. It's all for you, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Hey, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March 13th. Yikes, Friday the 13th. This is an unlucky day. Show number 12 of the 2020 fantasy baseball season, though. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. Another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We will have our League Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage from the National League, including Colton Wong, Lewis Brinson, and Adrian Hauser. And Ray Murphy will have news from the American League, including Ryan Yarbrough, Zach Greinke, and Nelson Cruz. We'll also have our commentaries from Baseball HQ in our frequent flyer commentary. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Atlanta third baseman and outfielder Austin Riley. And in the three-minute warning, I'll have part two of my master strategy in my points league, exploiting the best ball scoring system. It's another big Friday news and comment edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The public health situation has meant the cancellation of spring training and at least a delay in the start of the regular season. It's all very sad, but we all love the game. And so I say to heck with COVID-19. We are going to talk some baseball. It's very unclear what's going to happen with the 2020 baseball season. Of course, we're all hoping for the best for all kinds of good reasons, but for now, the game is on hold, as are other major sports leagues all the way around the world. And March Madness has even been cancelled, which is really disappointing, although it does mean we don't have to listen to talking heads yelling at each other about whether West Southwest Texarkana University and Auto Body should have been excluded from the pre-pre-tournament play-in game. But in the immediate aftermath of baseball's announcement, I heard an interesting option for how the big pro leagues might be able to get back on track. First, the suggestion was isolate all the players and test them. Then when the players are all deemed safe, you can start or restart the seasons. They'll need to continue taking sensible precautions, like only taking charter flights with tested aircrew, continued close monitoring of player health, and not letting Rudy Gobert go near anybody's sound equipment. Of course, it would also mean, and this is the hard part, no fans in the ballparks. Still, I don't know about you, but if I'm stuck in my house for the next three months, I wouldn't mind having some baseball on TV. Just saying. Fingers crossed. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Unfortunately, not a lot of news to report probably for the next couple of weeks with the uh, cancellation of spring training owing to the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus situation. Cooler heads have prevailed in that area, if you ask me. It's a wise move to do that and try to forestall any uh, further spread of this uh, terrible situation. But in the meantime, we ca- we have some analysis at BaseballHQ.com. The li- life does go on. Uh, let's start with uh, Colton Wong. He had a career best season last year, I think 11 home runs, 24 RBIs, had a 285 batting average. He was a, a mid-$20 player in fantasy baseball. The question is, 
what do Wong's skills suggest about his chance to repeat that performance in 2020? Brandon Cruz looked at the situation in Facts and Flukes. Uh, what does Brandon Cruz think about Colton Wong repeating t- 2019 this year? Well, in fact, one of the most important things about, about Colton Wong last year was a career-high 24 stolen bases, and that certainly helped a lot of owners out. But Brandon says he'll likely face some aggression this year. Uh, he's owned many of those 2019 skills before, but the aspect of his performance that had the least skill support was his batting average. He makes consistently above-average contact, but hard contact, power, line drive rate, all consistently below average. Uh, in both 2017 and 2019, had a 33% hit rate that gave him a higher BA, but his XBA in 2019 was 258, a good match for his career, 262 expected batting average, and that makes a more realistic target for 2020. Home run output got a slight boost from a career-high 36% fly ball rate, uh, twice earned of, owned a 34% rate, uh, power index, uh, expected power index, home run per fly were all right in line with typical levels, should be good for another 10 to 12 home runs, with uh, if he gets comparable playing time. Stolen base total was driven at a great surge in stolen base opportunity, but uh, owned a similar rate in 2015, posted a 26% SBO in 2014, so the higher rate of attempts wasn't that unusual. Uh, stolen base success bounced back from 55%, only a 55% success rate in 2018, to 86% in 2019. But that poor performance in 2018 really stands out as an outlier in his history. Career is 78% success rate. But a loss in batting average might hinder his running game with a lower on-base percentage. We're currently projecting Wong to hit 270, 12 home runs, 19 stolen bases, about an $18 player in 2020. And that feels like an appropriate slide given his skill set. Uh, we warned in the, in the baseball forecaster about a down of 250, 10 stolen bases, and that's still not out of the question given his skill set. Uh, odds are that uh, 2019 was a peak for Wong, and that leaves more downside risk than upside potential heading into this season. I noticed the BA versus expected batting average uh, difference last year as well when I was looking, uh, doing my own uh, draft prep. And uh, the, the other thing that stands out about Wong is that he doesn't draw a ton of walks. He's around 9%, 10%, 8% over the last couple of years. And you know, that's not bad. I'm not saying that it's subpar or anything like that, but he's not protecting the, the downside of the batting average with an upside in on-base percentage by, by drawing walks. And and that's a skill that develops over time, but uh, he's had a few years in the big leagues at this point. A uh, couple of thousand uh, plate appearances are pretty close to it. And he just doesn't seem to have developed that skill. In 2015, he was at 6% walks. Then he jumped up to nine, but it's been nine, ten, eight, nine, all in around there ever since. And I think if we're counting on uh, Colton Wong to repeat 24 stolen bases, he's going to have to figure out a way to get on base a little more, especially if, as as uh, Brandon suggests, and as you have reported, his batting average slides back to what we should expect, a, a 255, 260-ish kind of batting average, as he's had uh, in the past, although... In 2017, he had a 285 batting average, so it's not like he can't repeat it. It's just like he, it, it's not a really great bet to make. Right, yeah, I think that's that, That's the key here. It's not, a, it's not a good bet. I mean, certainly something positive can happen here, but I don't think we're going to see any um, any real upside from what we saw last season. I think at this point in Colton Wong, it's kind of all downside. It could certainly get back to last season's levels, but uh, I, I, as you said, not a good bet to make.
And when you're choosing your players and valuing your players, uh, it's all about making smart bets. It's all about probabilities and trying to weigh the likelihoods of things happening rather than like locking in on a $24 season or or an $18 season. You have to say to yourself, what's the range of outcomes here? How do I like his potential to meet these various uh, points within that range and and figure it out from there? And it's a a cautionary tale, we should say. Uh, Over in Milwaukee, Nick, I have to admit to you, before last year, I'd never heard of Adrian Hauser. He wasn't much of a prospect. I think we had him as a 7B uh, coming into 2019, and he didn't have that great of a year. Uh, uh, Well, he had a pretty good year, 372 ERA, but he did show some growth in strikeouts and command. In that same facts and flukes column, Brandon Cruz asks if Adrian Hauser can sustain the growth that he had last year and maybe improve on it. What's the story? Yeah, he broke out with a 3.72 ERA with huge leaps in strikeouts in command last season. Uh, and Brandon says most of that uh, that growth he can sustain, he believes, but there's some lingering still, still questions. Uh, his, his major league dom rates were nothing special. Uh, that carried over into his first taste of the majors in, in 2018. Then in 2019, started striking batters out more than ever before. Uh, more so in the bullpen in the first half, but even when he returned to the... Uh, to the rotation in the second half, that continued. And the difference seems to be adjustments to his pitch mix. He added a slider, which generated a 13.7% swinging strike rate, found more success with his changeup, which earned a 14.2% swinging strike rate for the year, and 17.4% in the second half. Um, some question about whether he'll be able to maintain an 8.9 dom rate from the second half with only a 9.7% swinging strike rate. That's below average but still seems unlikely to return to the kind of mediocre strike rates he had before last season. Uh, also dramatically increased the use of his sinker, a usage rate of 36%. That pitch generated a 68.8% ground ball rate, which explains the sudden gains he had in ground ball rate last season. So more strikeouts, more ground balls, uh, absolutely a path to becoming a better pitcher. And Hauser appears to have done that in a way that is mostly sustainable. Uh, won't likely be able to keep up the improved control he showed in the second half. His ball rate is slightly above average, but his overall 3.0 control seems like a realistic expectation. Uh, second half XERA was 3.75. More walks, perhaps a few less strikeouts. Odds are his XERA will move to the low fours. Uh, really, I think a very intriguing speculative option this spring, especially since the spot of the rotation seems to be secure. 2019 skill gains were very impressive. Given the way modern players are constantly tinkering and making adjustments, it's very possible we might see even more growth from him. Uh, not something we should pay for right now, but it's a reason to take a chance on him later in drafts and auctions and hope that there's a little more uh, untapped upside that uh, he and the and the coaches have not found yet. I thought it was interesting that in 2018 in Major League uh, play, he had a dom rate of 5.3 strikeouts per nine, which is really subpar and not playable and a 1.1 command rate. He was walking almost as many guys as he was striking out. Then in this 2019 real great improvement that Brandon Cruz wrote about and that you mentioned, his DOM rate surges from 5.3 to 9.5, so that's very close to 100% improvement. And at the same time, his walk rate declines. His control goes from 4.6 walks per nine to three. And whenever I see a big increase in command, which is strikeout to walks, from 1.1 to 3.2, my first question is, was this result uh, just because of movement in just one of the two components? That is, 
did he keep walking the same amount of guys but have a great big increase in strikeouts, or did he keep striking out the same amount of guys and have a really big decline in walks, resulting in the improved command ratio? And in this case, he did both, and that's something I do like to see. His walks went down, his strikeouts went up, and as a result, his command improved by quite a a wide margin. And I think in that instance, that's kind of a positive sign, that it wasn't just one skill that got better, it was both skills that got better. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, both skills improved. Uh, the other thing to look at here is he's at a good age, 27 years old, so heading into a kind of peak age for 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 ball players. And and, and you know you, you've got to you've got to figure that a lot of this had to happen with coaching, and uh, that makes a huge difference. And it certainly seems to show when he got to the majors last year, and the improvement kind of showed through the course of the year in the majors, and that's something to keep in mind as well. I also like to see that ground ball rate increase from 40% in 2018 during his actual experience to 53. And anytime they're getting that many ground balls, you you just everything about that helps in the era of the uh, big power gains across the board. Uh, it's always interesting, Nick, to talk about spring training leaders. A bit bittersweet under the circumstances, but uh, this spring training. Two Miami players are on the spring training leaderboards, one in home runs, one in stolen bases. Ryan Bloomfield wrote about this in his speculator column, Spring Training Tea Leaves. Uh, let's start with the home run race where one of the leading guys, Lewis Brinson, the always prospect, never quite delivering outfielder in Miami. Yeah, you know, the home run leaderboard is really rather sparse in Major League uh, in, in uh, spring training. Only four hitters, uh, Orlando Arcia, Nolan Arenado, Paul DeJong, and Cody Thomas had more than three home runs. But going down to three, you've got Lewis Brinson, who uh, has three through 25 at-bats. Uh, better yet, he also has 10 hits, just two strikeouts in that span. One of the main pieces that uh, Miami got for Christian Yelich two years ago, uh, Brinson was our number 14 prospect in the 2018 HQ100. Uh, been stuck on the 10-step prospect to start him for several years now. Uh, market has gotten uh, given up on him. Uh, but really a toolsy 9C prospect in uh, uh, when when he was still a prospect in 2018, uh, currently a 689 ADP. But if he can cut down on the strikeouts, everything could click rather quickly. This is a guy with some skills, uh, still young, and uh, it takes a while sometimes for those skills to come together. In terms of stolen bases, a guy named Money Harrison has been active on the base pass this spring, going 5 for 6 with 8 hits, 4 walks, 26 plate appearances. Uh, another piece from the Yellish trade, uh, his 2020 upside led to an 8D prospect rating in our Miami organization report. Strikeout woes here are a concern. A 67% contact rate in 215 at-bats at AAA New Orleans last season. But uh, a very intriguing power-speed combination on a team that has nothing to lose. So an A24 breakout uh, is certainly in uh, part of the wide range of outcomes we could see from uh, from Harrison. Going back to Brinson, you know, this is one of those situations, it's kind of like, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 17 times, shame on me. Uh, you know, Lewis Brinson has been hanging around and has had that top prospect tag for quite a while now, and he just never seems to get it done in his three big league seasons. Well, let's just eliminate 2017 and say in his last two big league seasons, he's had 600 plate appearances or 600 at-bats. Minus three dollars in 2018, minus seven dollars in 2019. So he's going in the wrong direction, and his skills seem to be just collapsing at the same time. Five uh, percent walk rate, his contact rate is now down to sixty-seven percent, 
and his OPS from 577 to 457. Everything here is headed in the wrong direction. And I'm not saying it can't happen for Lewis Brinson. He does have that prospect pedigree. He was a, a top guy. He's considered a top guy. And overall, this seems to be the kind of play that if you're playing in a league as I'm drafting right now where we have like 40 reserve spots, I might take a chance on one of the 40 reserve spots. But if I'm playing in a league where I've got four reserve spots or, or you know, two reserve spots, there's no chance I'm going with Lewis Brinson. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, Lewis Brinson is not the kind of guy you pick up if you've got to put him on your roster right away or if you don't have a lot of reserve spots. But if you've got a bunch of reserve spots, sure. Lewis Brinson's a guy to put on your reserve uh, if, if you've got 40 reserve spots, he's also a guy to uh, to keep an eye on once we get back to playing baseball the first few weeks of the season. If what he was doing in spring training continues, then he's a guy to pick up fairly quickly because the prospect pedigree is there. And we do have that 10-step prospect path to stardom that uh, takes a while with, with guys adjusting to the majors. Lewis Brinson's projection at BaseballHQ.com, another minus $3 season, uh, very limited performance, a batting average barely over 200. Uh, let's switch over to this Monty Harrison guy for a second, Nick. Uh, he has no major league experience at all, so what we're entirely basing this on, uh, the idea that you might want to draft Monty Harrison, is it's entirely based on expectations, and that generates uh, sort of a worry of its own. Having said that, Baseball HQ actually projects him to have a $1 season, but with only 93 at-bats. And the issue here is, are you willing to gamble a reserve spot on the possibility that maybe Monty Harrison, uh, when he gets his first call-up, really hits the ground running and instead of getting 93 at-bats, gets 350 at-bats, at which point you're looking at him maybe picking up uh, you know, eight or nine home runs and maybe 15 steals. As it is, three home runs, eight steals is the projection, but in that very limited playing time. Right, yeah, I think, you know, if, uh, that's, uh, that's really, if you look at it, quite a hefty projection for stolen bases and only 93 at-bats. But, uh, I, you know, a 66% contact rate gives me pause. Uh, if he can't, if that's all he was doing at AAA New Orleans, uh, certainly that's going to go down in the majors, right? And so uh, you begin to worry if he'll get on base enough to be able to use what is clearly a good speed tool. Yeah, the projection at Baseball HQ is that the contact rate will indeed decline all the way to 61%, which means now four times out of 10, this guy is striking out. And it's very difficult, as we've talked about many, many times here at Baseball HQ Radio, if a player strikes out a lot, no matter what he does with his balls in play, if he hits home runs galore on the percentages, that's all fine. But when you strike out, nothing good can happen. There's going to be no RBIs. You're not going to score a run uh, by by striking out unless the catcher drops it and you manage to get to first base and come around. It's a really bad outcome in a lot of ways. And at 40% of your of your at-bats, boy, I, I, I have to say, Nick, at that level, I'm very leery. I'm very leery at under 70%, frankly. And, and I, don't, I don't put those guys on my roster uh, for exactly those reasons. And... Uh, the other, but but you know, to, to get back to the positive thing, speculator says, is this a twenty percent play on these guys? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe there's a twenty percent play that these guys could have some value this year, and, and that's certainly one of the range of possibilities. But there are a lot of negative possibilities, certainly with both of them. And by the way, one of the uh, other leaders in the uh, spring training stolen base rate uh, race, I should say is a, a fellow named John Eshwi Fargus, and I just wanted to mention that because I love that name, John Eshwi. 
<laughs> he's a Mets prospect that has absolutely no chance of making the team, but I just love that name. Uh, Doug Dennis writes our regular bullpen buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com, as you know, Nick, and it's one of our favorite columns. And this week, all the buyer's guides, bullpens, starting pitchers, and batters, are looking at gambles. And this means that they're looking at players who might get drafted but should be considered r- extra risky shall we say. And Doug wrote this week that one of the messiest, most risky situations in the bullpens is in San Francisco. They've got three candidates for saves, combined projected expected ERA over 430. It seems like none of the guys that they have currently lined up to maybe be ninth inning uh, guys have the skills to close it. What's uh, what's Doug's full analysis here on these players? Yeah, you know, there, there's a uh... Uh, maybe say it's the kind of thing that they were hoping maybe somebody would kind of show up in spring training and 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 uh, and pull away from the pack. But um, these guys don't don't seem to offer much at this point. Sean Anderson had some saves in 2019, uh, current ADP of 467, but the skills simply aren't there. Uh, he's a huge gamble uh, and likely a wasted roster spot uh, with, with a BPV at this point of uh, 56. Uh, and we're looking at him as a minus $7 player. Uh, old lefty Tony Watson is uh, still around and uh, favored by the HQ projection with 11 saves. Maybe 15 now. Projections are updated, but uh, no one else. That's why he's there. Uh, no one else to do the job. Uh, 518 ADP. That's a real gamble, too. Better skill sets to own at that ADP, and you count, can't not count on even 15 saves from Tony Watson. Uh, Trevor Gott. Might be a little better than Watson. The price is better, but no team is really looking for Gott to close games. Uh, Gott's reliever ends up with saves when everybody else falls down. Uh, here, that might happen, but uh, you don't want to roster Gott with roster Gott with any kind of expectations. A uh, uh, projected 88 BPV minus five dollar uh, rate. Um, you know. Anything you do in the San Francisco bullpen is a gamble. And frankly, you could roster all three of those relievers and watch a different guy win the job by mid-April. So best to look elsewhere entirely, uh, Doug says, but keep an eye on the situation to see if another opportunity arises. And then he has, I think, one very interesting possible scenario, and that's Kevin Gaussman. Uh, Kevin Gaussman is likely to prove once again that he cannot be a starter. If, if Gaussman should fall into the pin, uh, he was terrific in the Reds' pen late in 2019, but like they have better skills than any other candidate for the Giants and could take over the job, provided he fails as a starter first. And it's easy to see a scenario where the Gaussman owner rostered him as a starter, got killed in April, chucked him into the free agent pool, only to see someone else grab him as a reliever and in short order watch him become the closer. Uh, there's certainly other scenarios that could play out as well, but uh, I would think that Kevin Gaussman is a kind of maybe a, a positive gamble as long as you have some kind of place to tuck him while he's uh, trying to be a starter. And the other thing to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out who's going to get the saves in San Francisco is there's not likely to be a whole lot of them. You know, uh, our Baseball HQ research has shown that roughly 50% of wins generate saves. You're looking at a fairly limited pool because San Francisco is not going to win a lot of games. I don't think anybody thinks that they are. So if you assume they're going to be under 500, that means there's going to be under 40 saves to divide up amongst uh, however many guys they, they throw the ball to in the ninth inning. Uh, this looks like a situation, again, if you've got a virtually unlimited 
reserve list, then sure, take a shot. Uh, I don't even mind taking a reserve shot at Gosman because maybe he's going to turn out to be a decent starter after all this time. But uh, this is not a bet I want to make. And certainly none of these three guys that Doug Dennis talked about as the current uh, incumbent hopefuls has anything to, to, to recommend him. And Tony Watson, one, la- one last thing to think about with Tony Watson as unlikely as he is to be a, a solid closer is he's the really the only good left-hander or ca- capable left-hander they have in the bullpen, which means he's likely to lose save opportunities just because of matchup situations. Right. Very definitely. Yeah. I mean, as a left-hander, he will lose opportunities with matchups and especially if there's not, he's not, a, he's not going to be, we know he's not going to be a lockdown closer. So, uh, yeah, the matchups are, are going to, to uh, frequently force the manager to go somewhere else if they actually have a chance to win a game. In the batting buyer's guide, also looking at gambles, these are guys with downsides. Stephen Nickrand, uh, one of our favorite columnists, wrote about a couple of guys I think that we should be thinking about. I've been seeing Jorge Alfaro, the Miami catcher, creeping up in the ADPs. He got drafted uh, relatively early in one of my drafts. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. He does have a lot of high upside, but uh, why does... Uh, Stephen Nickran consider Jorge Alfaro to be risky. In a, in a dynasty league, Jorge Alfaro certainly has a lot of high upside, and uh, he turned some of that into results in 2019, 262 batting average, 18 homers, 57 RBIs, and 431 at-bats, and not not bad for a catcher. Um, certainly he has the raw power and the speed to be a difference maker down the road, but still at this point has gigantic holes in his swing. 64% contact rate, we've already talked about the, the minus from that, Hits a lot of ground balls, 53% ground ball rate, only a 22% line drive rate, 25% fly ball rate. One of the lowest launch angles in baseball in 2019, 4.7 degree launch angle. So in single year leagues, he's not someone I think I would take a chance on. At a 210 ADP, that's way too high to be drafting drafting Alfaro uh, for the current season. In a dynasty league, uh, there may be something there down the road. Yeah, that's the 14th round, and uh, what when I saw that ADP, I thought, you know what, this might be one of those situations where, you know, you get the first, you get Real Muto off the board right away, then you get that second tier of catchers, and then maybe somebody starts a run on that third tier of catchers, and, and Alfaro might be somewhere in that mix, and, and you think to yourself that maybe this is why he's going, because people are panicking, because he just doesn't seem like a 210 ADP, 14th, 15th round guy. Maybe I'm wrong, and, and people just think he is because of the upside and because of the strong, positive season that he showed last year. But uh, I agree with you entirely. 64% contact rate, he just can't generate stats, if, if you ask me. Uh, another guy that Stephen Nickran looked at as a downside risk is Ramil Tapia, the outfielder in Colorado. What's the story there? Well, Tapia was a guy we've been, we've been looking at for a while. He took a step forward last season, delivered $11 value, added modest value in uh, – in, uh, Multiple categories, 275 batting average, nine homers, nine stolen bases, 426 at-bats. Um, so is he going to show more growth in 2020? You've got to note that he has very marginal plate discipline. 5% walk rate, 77% contact rate, 0.21i, uh, a lack, complete lack of power, 64 expected power index, um, and very pessimistic stat cast metrics, 87.4 miles per hour exit velocity, 7.3 degree launch angle. Uh, most of his value is in his speed, which is at 136, and that's good. So if he can cut down his strikeouts, it's a formula that can make him a batting average stolen base play, but the marginal contact makes it likely that's not going to happen in 2019. So uh, again, he's a guy that I think would I would uh, 
uh, unless he suddenly wound up with a full-time job, uh, is someone that I would not be rostering, uh, at least immediately. On the positive side, amongst the guys we've been talking about here, in his four big league seasons, and a couple of them are very low at-bat seasons, frankly, but he's never been below 70% contact rate, which I think is a fairly substantial quantitative difference between him and, say, a guy like Alfaro or some of the guys we talked about earlier, like Brinson and, and Monty Harrison and these guys who are striking out 40% of the time. In some instances, uh, last year, for instance, uh, uh, Raymond Tapia only struck out 23% of the time. And he can really run. And so the idea to me is I want a guy like Raymond Tapia, if he's going to be on my roster, I want him to do two things. I want him to put the bat on the ball, and I want him to hit it on the ground a lot because if he puts it in the air, it's a, it's a done deal. He's out. You know, he's, he's going to only, even in Colorado, he's only going to hit a handful of home runs. And if he's trying to hit them, he's going to hit more, way more cans of corn. So from my point of view, I would rather have Ramel Tapia hitting more or less like he does now. And that doesn't mean I'm recommending him. It's just something to think about if you're getting into that stage of your reserve round. Maybe you, you look at your list and you think, boy, I'm really short of stolen bases. Right. I think you're right. Uh, you know, if he should wind up with, for, for a short period of time, say, a, uh, a full-time role in, in Colorado when he's playing at home, uh, you know, there's a lot that can happen there. And, and you're not drafting him for his power. You're drafting him for his stolen bases. Even though he had nine homers and nine stolen bases a year ago, the stolen bases are what you're drafting him for. And we should say, uh, we talked about this uh, a week or so ago, uh, Ron Chandler says there's no such thing as no path to playing time. He just he cringes, he told me here at Baseball HQ Radio. Every time somebody says, well, he's an okay player, he's got potential, but there's no path to playing time. And Chandler says, how can you say that? Given the injury situation, the underperformance situation, given everything that can go wrong with the players in front of you, there's no way you can say this. Now, we have... Ramel Tapia down for 35% of the uh, playing time in the outfield in Colorado. But listen to the guys who are in front of him on that list. Ian Desmond, David Dahl. David Dahl's been hurt every year that I can remember. Now, Charlie Blackman's not going to get replaced and has been a very reliable guy. And another guy that uh, is in the mix is Sam Hilliard, who's also kind of like Tapia, jockeying around looking for opportunities based on injuries and underperformance. And uh, I would rather have Hilliard than Tapia, quite frankly. Yeah, I would too. I'd rather have Hilliard than Tapia, especially in, in Colorado. But, but as you said, there's there are paths to playing time there with uh, two of the outfielders uh, uh, as injury risks, and you know certainly some an easy possibility that Tapia could wind up with several months of full time full time role. And I have to admit, uh, both of them are, are outfielders. Sam Hilliard is primarily a center fielder. Uh, I know Tapia can run. Uh, Sam Hilliard's got good speed, or at least has showed good speed in the minors. So there's defensive considerations to make here as well. It's an interesting situation to watch. Should baseball ever get started again this year, uh, I'll be keeping an eye on that Colorado outfield situation. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out this week. I know you've got uh, things you've got to do, as all of us do, to try to get ourselves prepared for the uh, the uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 situation that's racing around. So uh, be safe, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Patrick. Same to you. Be safe there as well. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio.
When we come back, we'll have news and analysis from the American League. But right now, it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Market Pulse, Matthew Cedarholm has his annual all-value team, identifying players with the largest gaps between their market value and their projected Baseball HQ value. This is always a great article, and I'm pleased to report that a lot of the all-value players are already rostered on some of my teams. In alternative gaming, Matt Beagle, a former star here at Baseball HQ Radio, has his draft guide for hitters in points leagues. And in the GM's office, Ray Murphy discusses the effects of widespread public health and the situation on baseball, fantasy baseball, and Baseball HQ. Those are just three of the articles among literally dozens, a small sample of all the great content you'll find at Baseball HQ all the time. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day. There are going to be daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we do call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And remember, apply your special HQ Radio listener discount code, type in PATRICK at checkout, and enjoy 10% off many subscriptions and books. Discount code PATRICK, and you get 10% off. Can't beat that. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for news from the American League, and here with the news and analysis is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Always good to catch up. Before we get going, you're uh, in the midst of the uh, first pitch online forums where you're doing the uh, first pitch forums that used to be done uh, live and in person at various locations, but you've moved the process online. You're halfway through uh, that uh, those sessions for this year. How's it going? They're going really well. We've got a lot of good response, and you know, the uh, we also had a lot of people jump into the program between the first event last week and the second event this week. So, you know, people have interest, and now that um, you know, we had a bit of a glitch with the first week where we were not able to get a recording of the live event, but uh, we got a recording of, of the uh, event this week on Wednesday night, and that's already available online along with the speaker notes and slide decks from, from both sessions. So there's a good amount of content out there already for anybody who wants to come on and consume it. And we've got one more session scheduled for next week on Tuesday night when we're probably going to truncate the program part of it, uh, keep that down to maybe a half an hour of new content and focus that on uh, spring training, emerging news, job battles, etc. And we're going to leave a good half of the session for uh, Q&A and make it highly interactive. So, uh, you know, obviously in all sorts of... uh, dimensions there are a lot of questions out there so we're going to uh, spend some time trying to answer and we'll spend some time here trying to answer them uh, the speculator column we had ryan bloomfield on earlier this week as the tuesday tout and his uh, latest speculator column is called spring training tea leaves and he's looking at some of the big stories that have been developing in training camps and uh, that seems to start with the different baseball of a lot of controversy over the last couple of years about the changes in the baseball and how it affects pitchers and how it affects home run hitting in particular. Some pitchers, Ray, so far this spring training season have already said the ball feels a little softer and the seams feel a little higher. And pitchers are happy about that. Uh, One guy likened throwing last year's ball to trying to throw a cue ball rather than a baseball. If this uh, is a change and not just a momentary blip, 
how do we play it? Because we really don't know if the spring t- training ball is going to be the same ball they use in the regular season. Yeah, that really is an unanswered question. Uh, that was a topic that came up at First Pitch Florida, and the good news is that the research shows that within roughly two weeks of the start of the, re- of the regular season, we'll know the characteristics of the ball, but you know, unless you're drafting two weeks after opening day, that doesn't really help you with your draft. So I, I think there are some, you know, I, it's hard to build an entire draft plan around these kind of considerations, especially considering if you made some early draft picks based on some set of assumptions that they were wrong, that's a big problem and hard to recover from. But I think it's entirely fine to take some reasonable guesses and some, some, um, some stands in the end game as far as you know, maybe some guys who might have some upside if the ball changes the way we think it might. And if we're wrong, and if it's a cue ball and guys are getting hammered, then you just get away from some of those late draft picks or single-dollar investments, and they don't hurt you that much. When I was thinking about it, it seemed to me that there's kind of a marginal effect going on with the ball in that if it goes back to being the happy fun ball, then all the home run hitters benefit. But I was curious, in your experience or having looked at it over the last couple of years, are certain pitchers more troubled? I guess fly ball pitchers, obviously, but uh, a lot of pitchers complained about not being able to get the same amount of spin on the ball. So even ground ball pitchers might have been affected because they're not getting as much bite on the sinker or as much uh, snap on their breaking pitches to generate ground balls. Was there any research done or was is there any knowledge that's been created about the kinds of pitchers who are affected by the reduced spin and drag effects on the ball based on last year's fun ball? I haven't done an actual research study, but it did jump out at me in the fall when we were writing the baseball forecaster and going through the process of you know looking at you know all the pitchers in the player pool and writing the, the commentaries. There really was just no shelter from the home run barrage last year. Ground ball guys weren't weren't safe. Off off speed pitchers weren't safe. Guys with high velocity weren't safe. Even the aces weren't safe. You know, guys who had a great year like you know even Justin Verlander was giving up home runs and buckets. It was just he was so good at keeping people off a of base that they were all solo shots. And it really just did seem that the the happy fun ball was just indiscriminate in how it punished pitchers. So if anything, if there's a return to a grippier ball, then I think our longstanding principles of what kind of pitchers are better able to manage around the home run, keep the ball in the yard, um, manage the quality of contact, go back to being in effect. It really just seems like everything, from what I can tell, everything we thought we knew about pitchers and what types of pitchers were better able to keep the ball in the park just went out the window last year. And Ray, on the flip side, we have the home run hitters, your Pete Alonzo's and your Giancarlo Stanton's, assuming he ever gets back on the field, they're not going to be affected as much by changes in the ball because home runs that they hit are Joey Gallo, those type of guys, those balls go out of the yard. We, we, we understand that. It's the guys who are hitting a lot of wall scrapers that are sneaking over because of the extra 10 or 12 feet that are going to be affected. And so uh, how soon are we going to know, do you think, in the, when the regular season starts, whether the ball has been changed enough to drop down the projected home run totals of your Justin Smokes and, and guys like that who really benefited from the uh, home run ball and not so much your Pete Alonzo's? And the research says it's two weeks. Uh, I think it was Jason Collette who 
uh, has said he has done research two weeks into the season for the last several years about what the quality of the ball and the run environment look like and that the two-week findings have held up over the course of the rest of the season. So we're going to know early. It's just – so maybe, maybe there will be some opportunities you know, when the free agent pool is still – a little softer when there might be some guys who still have emerging playing time still to uh, be sorted out that some, that maybe you'll at least know what types of guys you want to replace. If that's the way that it turns out. Assuming of course that you can replace them, especially in deeper leagues, uh, you know, it's one thing to know that you'd rather not have player X as a hitter, but you're not going to be able to say, well, instead of having Justin smoke, I'll just go get Mike trout, you know, because the, the replacements are probably going to be even worse. Yeah. Uh, well, Ryan talked about a couple of pitchers as possible beneficiaries if the, if the happy fun ball has been replaced by something with a bit more spin. And one of them I thought really jumped out at me was Ryan Yarbrough of Tampa. Yeah, Yarbrough's a good one uh, because it's not really a blind coin flip, in, which is sort of what I think we were in danger of talking about earlier, where you're placing a bet on what kind of ball it's going to be and drafting a guy accordingly. Yarbrough's a guy I like regardless. Uh, you know, late gamer, you know, he's not costing a lot at the draft table. There, there are plenty of things to like in his skills last year, even with the happy fun ball. But Ryan Bloomfield points out that Back going back two years in 2018, he had an elite curveball that really t- deteriorated to just average last year, and it's he was still pretty good last year even with that average curveball. But it's a reminder that he could be even better with a happy fun ball environment. So that's a perfect speculation because he doesn't cost a lot. It's not like the bottom's going to fall out if it's a, if the ball's a cue ball, and if it is a grippier ball, then he might really take a step up. Not that it has to do with uh, spin particularly, but Ryan also noted a new story that coming out of spring training, Zach Granke is firing the heater at velocities quite a bit higher than we're used to seeing in spring training from him. He's one of those guys who has always seemed to be, I'll work myself into it, you know, mid-80s fastball, I don't care if I get hit, I'm only working on stuff. He's a bit of an iconoclast anyway, but... uh, this season, the, the fastball has been coming in well over 90 miles an hour, 91, 93 range, which is something we're not used to seeing in spring training. Nobody's asked him, or at least he's not saying why he's ramped up the fastball earlier this year. Is there anything we should make of this news? You know, this is really funny. Ryan clearly saw the same interview that I did with Granky about this, where, you know, classic you know, guy standing in front of his locker with a guy jamming a microphone or I guess in these days a phone in front of him and saying, you know, hey, Zach, you know, you really, you know, you punched up the velocity. You were like 91, 92 today. And I think last spring you never even cracked 90. What, what do you attribute that to? And, you know, Granky just deadpans, look at him and says, yeah, I'm working out less this offseason. Yeah, it was, it was just hilarious. Just clap. Um, but. In terms of how to interpret that this year, you know, Cranky's not a, he's obviously not a velocity darling. His vo- his velocity, his fastball velocity just averaged 90 dead even for last year, and that's nothing new. He hadn't had a uh, velocity over 92, I'm looking at his page now, since, since 2012. I mean, we're going on, you know, eight, nine years since he was up even in the 92 range. So if he picked up a tick, great, but... You know, I, I don't think it's going to materially affect his results. What I do think is that it indicates that 
he's healthy and primed and ready for another run in a 200-inning season. And given all the attrition in the starting pitching pool, a 200-inning season that you can more or less take to the bank is getting harder and harder to come by literally every day. So I, I think in looking around at a bunch of websites, we're, we might be the high projection on Grinky, the good projection on Grinky uh, this year anyway, and I'm feeling better and better about that as the spring goes on. You know, something about his pitch mix that I think might be uh, a little bit helpful is if he if he's getting his fastball up over 90 now, and if we if we interpolate that to mean there's going to be a mile or two extra during the regular season, you mentioned he's been down around 90, 91 for the last two or three seasons. And as that's been the case, his changeup has remained pretty much stable around 87. So the gap between fastball and changeball has been narrowing. And... Uh, Maybe if he's going to get a couple of miles an hour on his fastball, that widens the gap between fastball and change, and that that's got to help. Yeah, that's a great point. If you think back to, um, you know, somebody you can compare him to is probably sort of late stage Trevor Hoffman, who you know certainly made a you know made a Hall of Fame career off of his changeup. The thing that happened there that eventually did him in was exactly what you're talking about. That as he lost fastball velocity, the fastball and the changeup essentially had no differentiation between them, and hitters could just time him that much more effectively. So if Cranky is picking up a little bit of velocity, it just means that he is, you know, even though he's 35, 36 now, he is, he's basically that much further away from the cliff. And, you know, again, all the more reason to think that there's just another vintage Cranky year coming here. Well, I'm glad to say I picked up Zach Grinke in one of my drafts in the fourth round. I think uh, with all the attrition we've seen in American League pitching in particular that we're going to be seeing Zach Grinke go a little higher than that. And certainly, you know, he's he's not as young as he used to be. None of us are, I suppose. But Zach Grinke is starting to shape up as one of those guys I've always liked as I don't quite understand how he's doing it, but he reminds me a lot in that way of Greg Maddox, who even as he got older, got smarter and was just had what we used to call guile. I don't even know if we use that term anymore, but uh, if it exists, he seems to have it. For sure. And the other thing that's changing a little bit to me is obviously he's got a good track record of durability, but this is going to be his first full year in Houston, right? And uh, one of the things going on with that team is with the Verlander injury, with Cole leaving, and with the relatively unproven core of back-end starters behind him who have to be innings managed and all, it's probably pretty likely that they're going to just set Grinky and forget him in terms of you know letting him work into deep, deep into games, not being worried about managing his workload. They're going to have much, you know, a, a slew of other higher priorities to worry about in the rotation if they can trust Grinky and he's just going there, taking the ball every fifth day, going six, seven innings. They're going to, they're just going to let that happen. It, you know, if, if Verlander's not going to go 200 and not just 200, but you know he's going to be under 200 innings this year. I wouldn't be surprised if Cranky doesn't just get to 200 on his own, but they let him take a run at like 215, which really gets to the point where in this day and age when nobody else is going over 180, you're getting like a starter and a third in terms of counting stats out of him. Yeah, that's an important point as well. Uh, that's Ryan Bloomfield, speculator column this week. Other news in there to, to look at as well. It's a really good column. Uh, interestingly, one of the things about Baseball HQ and the, and the columns and stuff is 
there are reader comments at the ends and people ask questions or make comments and uh, it's a usually a pretty smart interchange of ideas. It's not, you know, Twitter sniping or anything like that. And one of Ryan's readers asked in the aftermath of that speculator column about the Seattle Mariners announcement that they're not going to be playing their opening two series at least in Seattle because of the uh, coronavirus issues and we don't want to have big crowds and stuff. And this reader who goes by the handle of Doobie Cough, and I want to give him his credit, wondered if we should be bumping Mariners hitters because they might be playing in Peoria, an Arizona Fall League park, uh, a spring training park, and a real hitters park. As anybody who's attended First Pitch Arizona and been out at that park knows, uh, are we going to be revaluing Seattle hitters based on this information that they might be playing outside of the heavy, moist air in Seattle? You know, it's a tough call. It's the right question to be asking, and I don't think we have quite enough information to answer it. I mean, if there's something to be taken away here, it's that I I made this point in the first pitch online event last night, so much information about this entire, uh, this entire pandemic is changing day to day, hour to hour. And we're still two weeks away from opening day. And in the lifespan of this developing situation, two weeks is an absolute eternity and you know given the nba news now i think there are open questions about where mlb where and whether mlb is going to be playing at all not just the mariners so can you change your draft values because of it even if we knew it was just the mariners and was just peoria for their first homestand i'm not sure that six games out of 81 in a better hitters park is going to change my mind on how much i want to pay for daniel vogelback or Evan White or other Mariner hitter inserted here. Uh, but we can't rule out that that's not the scope of the problem just yet. So keep an eye on it and know when you're drafting. I've got a couple of drafts this weekend, or at least drafts that right now are scheduled for this weekend, and I don't think I'm going to do anything about the, the, those valuations right now, but that could change right up to the time when I sit down at the draft table. Yeah, and, and I'll bet you that somebody in your league is going to. Uh, somebody's going to say, I'm going to take those extra six games in uh, in a band box, and uh, I will bump Evan White up by a dollar or two in an auction or a round or two in a draft, which means you might not get Evan White, but we don't know what the full impact is going to be. I mean, they could end up playing their whole season there, uh, or they may not end up playing at all. Who knows? Uh, one of the really on-point columns at Baseball HQ as far as fantasy planning is the Big Hurt. Uh, it's an injury analysis column that Matthew Cedarholm does a great job writing, and Matt was looking at players with elevated health risks or the perception of elevated health risks. And one American League hitter who caught Matt's eye is Minnesota DH Nelson Cruz. And he was quick to note that Nelson Cruz has not had injury problems over the last few years, but he does have a lot of miles on the chassis. He's 39 years old. He has had some nagging things here and there. How do we look at age-related health risk with a player like Nelson Cruz who doesn't have any overt or obvious injury history, especially in the recent past? Yeah, Matt makes a good point here in what, he, what he's basically doing is reminding the readers that the health grade is a backward-looking metric. And it looks back at DL days over the last three years and assigns a grade based on that. But much like your financial advisor will say, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And that's really what he's saying with Cruz here in that you have to remember with Cruz that this is a 39-year-old 
and ironically, you had a very bumpy patch of health in his like late 20s, early 30s, back when he was with Texas, and has had a remarkable run in his late 30s of good health. But he's a 39-year-old, and as sort of like an older car, as long as your car keeps running, that's fine. But you are more likely to see things start to break down with it, or more to Matt's point with Cruz, if things start to break down, muscle, wear and tear, pulls, back, that sort of thing, it, just because he's 39, it's likely to take him longer to recover from it. And that is probably something you have to plan, in, plan into your investment in Nelson Cruz. Not necessarily that he's going to get hurt because he's 39, but if he does, it's likely to be a longer stint for the same injury than a 29-year-old. Well, I, I looked up Nelson Cruz after I read that uh, piece in uh, in Matt's column, and although Nelson Cruz has not had any big important injuries or big lasting injuries over the last few years, his plate appearances have been declining. Uh, 645 in 2017 dropped to 591, so a drop of about 54 there from 2017 to 2018, and then last year down to 521. So he's off 120 plate appearances over the last two seasons, and that does sound like somebody trying to maybe manage somewhere in terror. Uh, we all remember getting older, and when I was, uh, you know, that age, 39, I started having a little back trouble and, and started having a, a little bit of shoulder trouble and so forth. And I wonder if this is something that we need to price in when we're thinking of Nelson Cruz because all the all the tout talk about Nelson Cruz in the offseason has been, this guy's a rock, this guy's indestructible. You know, he's a, he's a sure thing to get a full-time pl- uh, load of plate appearances in this season, just like he has in all the last seasons. And maybe so, but in 2014, he had almost 700 plate appearances. Last year, he had uh, just over 500 plate appearances. That's not the same guy. No, you're absolutely right. And off the just right off the drop here, you have to shave off nine games he's not going to play in NL Parks because of the lack of a DH. And then to your point, there are maintenance days beyond that. The Twins have a good deep lineup and are going to be able to let him sit. Not that DHing four, you know, going up to the plate four times a day and running and running around the bases is all that taxing, but they're still going to be able to give him planned days off. So I think you've got to set your upper, upper baseline for how many games Cruz is going to play at you know, you got to start with 135, 140, and then go down from there for any unforeseen circumstances that you want to talk about, injuries, etc. So we've got him at 85% playing time right now, which is 518 at-bats, and that's probably pretty close to a ceiling as opposed to an over-under. And the interesting thing about Nelson Cruz is in the, in that 2014 season, just under 700 plate appearances, I mentioned 678, had 40 home runs. Last year, uh, 150 fewer plate appearances, 41 home runs. So he seems to be getting the most out of the playing time that he's getting. Yeah, for sure. And if you look at his home run total for the last six years, it's in a very narrow range. He's one of these guys that you were talking about earlier that like does not care about what kind of ball they're using. He's between 37 and 44 home runs for six years running. So you can take the power to the bank on a per-at-bat basis. It's really just a question of what the at-bat denominator is. 
On the flip side, Matt also identified some players whose health risk might be overstated because of the way that the algorithm works. We're looking at DL days, but some DL days are quantitatively or qualitatively, I should say, different from the other kinds of DL days. So if you've got a guy, a pitcher who's got an elbow injury, that's a problem. If you've got a pitcher who took a ground ball off the big toe and he's on the DL, that's not a problem because it was a kind of a fluky thing. And the example that Matt pointed to is Oakland starter Frankie Montas, already a bit of a tout darling. But why is Matt so confident in Frankie Montas's health risk being lower than it might seem? So this is a great point from Matt, which is where you'd get the intersection of analytics and data with common sense in terms of injuries, right? And Matt's point here is that the injury that cost him uh, roughly two-thirds of the season back in 2016, which is still calculated in his uh, in his health grade, it was he had a rib resection. He had a rib removed. So obviously that's not an injury that's going to recur. The rib can't bother him anymore. It's you know in a dumpster somewhere. And the if there were any you know, lingering secondary effects related to the surgery, the incision, whatever you have, you know we're now three years removed from that. So that's essentially a a, a, a completely non-issue for him. We're still digging him on the health grade for that, but it's the kind of thing that. You know, as sure you can be that he is not going to have a ongoing issue with his removed rib three years later. And other than that, he has had a pretty clean health slate. Of course, he also had the uh, PED issue that cost him a lot of games, and there's... Uh, kind of an open argument about how long the effects of PED usage lingers. Does it give you a a kind of a permanent benefit or does it wane over time and all those kind of issues? But uh, Frankie Montas, I I believe he's being overdrafted now just because not just of injury risk, but because of young player risk. And we don't really know he's got, what, a couple of hundred innings in in the big leagues over two years. There's lots of reasons to be reluctant to draft Frankie Montas at the ADP he's going at. But on the other hand, if you like Frankie Montas, at least I think we can say, Ray, with some confidence, don't let his poor uh, health risk categorization at Baseball HQ dissuade you. That's exactly right. We, we're fairly, as you say, we're fairly low on the range of projections for Montas in drafts and auctions I've been in this year. I've never even gotten close to getting him because someone's paying a price for him that I, frankly, he's not even on my board or I'm not I'm not even in the value range that he's going for. So I've never even come close to getting him this year. But that has nothing to do with either the health concern or the PEDs. It's really just a question of our projection, how much ERA regression we see from last year and the fact that we've only got him protected for about 145 innings because he's never even thrown as many as 100 innings in a big league season. So that really, for me, just caps his value. Uh, our projection is for somewhere in the you know high single digits in an AL only league, and I and you know certainly single mid single digits probably in a mixed league. But he's going uh, with an ADP of you know 116. He's like an eighth rounder in a mixed league, which might you know might well be you know five rounds before i would even think about him yeah that's what i was thinking exactly the same thing and uh moving to the field we've seen some fairly interesting uh, performances in spring training i'd like to get your take on uh, the first one toronto catcher danny jansen boy this guy had a brutal 2019 he killed a lot of teams including one of mine 
Four home runs already, Ray, in spring training. Uh, got one the other night. And I know the standard caution that we always give everybody, spring training doesn't matter. But at some point, spring training does matter. And when do those spring training stats start to matter to you as a projections guy and as a fantasy owner? They mostly don't, but there's there, there were still reasons to be optimistic about Jansen coming into this season. He was actually in our first pitch program this week, uh, the online version for uh, on a list of guys who were last year's trash who could be much more valuable this year. And that's you know, and certainly we mentioned the spring stats in that slide, but that's not the that's not the full case by any means. We liked him a lot coming off of his rookie 2018 season at this time last year, and he completely tanked. But he's a young catcher who catches, you know, catcher bats takes, sometimes take longer to, to, to develop. He did show us some really interesting skills in 2018, even though he didn't carry them over last year. And things did get better somewhat in the second half last year. His first half was just an absolute atrocity, but he got back closer to the baseline in the second half last year. And maybe if they're, you know, if, if he's figuring things out and developing as a hitter, and that's really the launching pad. And we sort of forget about the first half of 2019. He's not as bad as he looked. And of course the bar is not that high for a catcher to be, to have some utility to us. So far in spring training, he's got a 1953 OPS with those four home runs. He's driven in 13 in just 20 plate appearances. And the cautionary note here, of course, is he's not doing this necessarily all against big league pitching. I haven't looked up Danny Jansen's uh, plate appearances, plate appearance by plate appearance. All of this destruction that he's been wreaking could have been done against you know, college pitchers or, you know, A-level pitchers, we don't know. And so that's a very high-level cautionary note, unless if you look into it and you find out that Danny Jansen's hitting big league pitchers, that kind of gives him a notch up. But even at that, a lot of big league pitchers in spring training are not going 100%. They're trying out new pitchers, uh, new pitches. There's lots of reasons to be a little circumspect about a, about a Danny Jansen catcher, but he did have a good season a couple of years ago and looked really good, and then he got overdrafted, and then he looked really bad. Maybe now he's being underdrafted. Yeah, you make a good point, and actually, uh, baseball reference has spring training stats, and they also slap a pretty cool, rough opposition quality metric on everybody to measure what you're talking about, how many how many, how many of the stats are coming against college pitchers versus guys who will be bagging groceries in two weeks versus, you know, other major league players. And uh, Jensen's actually is fairly low. I mean, maybe not for this time of the spring, given that it's still fairly early in spring training, but it's, uh, it's not quite even double-A level pitching he's been facing. So, yeah, certainly it seems like a couple of grains of salt are warranted there. Yeah, just to put a number on it, uh, a seven level is is considered double A quality pitching. He's at six point nine. So, yeah, let's uh, let's slow our roll on Danny Jansen. But I still like Danny Jansen as a as last year's bum, as you mentioned, uh, Gene McCaffrey's famous saying. And finally, Ray, speaking of spring training outings, you're a Boston guy. How about Eduardo Rodriguez? Four scoreless innings on Wednesday night against Tampa. He struck out 10 in those four innings. I think his ERA is around 165 across 11 spring training innings so far. His whip is way under one. And uh, last time I checked, it's something like 20 strikeouts in 11 innings pitched. And then you start, you know, your mind, you can't help it, Ray, but you start thinking, hey, 20 strikeouts in uh, in 11 innings, that would be uh, zip, 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 zip in 190 innings. 
I really like Eduardo Rodriguez all of a sudden. And again, quality of opposition matters, all these kind of things. But how okay is it to start getting interested in maybe raising our expectations for 2020 on Eduardo Rodriguez? I've been pretty interested in him all winter, and I think the attrition we're seeing in the starting pitching pool only heightens my interest. Uh, My local take on it, and I I should go back and confirm this, because it's something I read a while back, maybe last season, when he was suddenly durable and emerging as the... the, uh, you know, the stalwart of the Boston rotation, that, you know, one of the things we knock him for is, you know, kind of getting back to the philosophy of the big hurt. One of the things we knock him for is the ability, and he had a bunch of leg and knee issues as a young pitcher coming into, you know, that, that kept him out of the rotation for long stretches until last year when he suddenly hung up, uh, I think he fell one out short of 200 innings. I think he was 199 and two-thirds. Um, but I think what happened there is, sort of not dissimilar from what happened with Manny Machado's two knees. And I think that he had like a chronic degenerative type knee thing in both knees, but both knees have been surgically repaired now. And I think those are, you know, it's hard to say those are a non-issue, but much like with Machado, they corrected, you know, something they knew was always going to be a problem or, or what was a chronic problem for him growing up. And I think it might be the case that we can, dial back the concern about his durability because the chronic issue with the legs has been addressed. And if that's the case, and if he's he quickly becomes one of the few guys that we can ink in for 190-plus innings, like you say, and then a strikeout total that could be well into the 200s, there aren't many guys that are going to give us that at all this year, let alone the fact that Rodriguez goes around, you know, somewhere around round, round eight or round nine where he's a bargain, particularly because a lot of the other pitchers going at that tier are the 140, 150 inning guys where we really like the skills, but we expect an innings limit or something along those lines to cap their value, and Rodriguez is kind of the opposite. Yeah, this looks like a pick that has some upside. I saw a news item somewhere that uh, it's likely that Eduardo Rodriguez is going to be the opening day starter for the Red Sox, which puts him in ace category, at least as far as the team is concerned. Uh, this is a, a an interesting development in a pitcher that, frankly, we've been looking at for a, a number of years now and has kind of teased us around the edges without ever coming across with that really solid season. Uh, I should mention the opposition quality of spring training for Eduardo Rodriguez, according to BaseballReference.com, is 8.3, which is kind of tr- between AAA and the majors. The majors is 10. It's closer to AAA, but it's not nobody. That's a pretty good number for that metric, especially... You know, in the first half of the spring, when uh, you know you're playing against a lot lesser competition, and the, you know the regulars are getting out of the lineups early on, even on good days, and that sort of thing. That's about it. That's about as high. I haven't gone through all those numbers in great detail, but that's about as high a number as I've seen so far this year. Before I let you go, Ray, uh, Tout Wars canceled the uh, live drafts in New York City this week because of the uh, implications of coronavirus and traveling, especially on airplanes where everybody's breathing the same awful air for hours at a time. And we're going to be doing all the Tout Wars drafting online this year. I think it's a wise decision. But uh, how have you heard that the uh, these coronavirus issues are affecting the bigger the bigger sort of draft environment? and the uh, uh, the draft planning that's going on at this stage. Yeah, it's obviously a big concern for everybody. And like I said at the top, you know, it's changing day over day. Tout was sort of, I mean, to their credit, they got out in front of it and made a call 
early enough this week for people who had to, to travel to change plans, et cetera. Uh, yeah, NFBC is also drafting in New York. They were sharing space with the uh, Talent Wars crowd this weekend, and they're uh, still polling their larger group of people to find out what to do uh, for their live drafts. Anybody who wants to can do them online. That's not an issue, but they're, uh, you know, they've, they're also having auctions and they're trying to hold together the live auctions, you know, some, in some cases with proxies if they need to, or, you know, people, a couple of people participating via phone. So it's a mess. Everyone's, you know, you, you certainly get the sense that everyone's trying to do the right thing, but literally the target and the information and the guidance is changing so quickly that, you know, people may have thought as recently as last weekend that they knew what the right thing was and everyone's just constantly reassessing. And, you know, it's as we're talking here, I'm still, you know, more than 24 hours from my first draft this weekend. And I don't know how, in what form it's going to be held and whether I'm going to be online or whether I'm going to pop down to New York to uh, to do it in person. You know, and I'm putting off that decision to the last possible minute just because, like I said, the, the facts on the ground are changing so rapidly. Yeah, everything I've been hearing about the virus and the response to it has not been encouraging as far as whether or not it's a good idea to to gather with people. But right now, my sense of it is if I had to fly somewhere, I probably wouldn't want to because the the understanding now of it is it's a it's a uh, airborne contagion, not a not a touch related contagion as much. And when you're on an airplane, they're recirculating the air. They have to because of the pressurization. So you're anybody on that plane is infectious, then that whatever he's breathing out or she's breathing out is making the entire airplane air environment not that cool. And you can't protect yourself with a surgical mask or a dental mask or something like that. Uh, you need a particular kind of very uh, high-grade respirator. They're very in very short supply, of course, because medical professionals need them and stuff, and maybe we shouldn't be taking up a, a respirator so that we can go play uh, fantasy baseball, but some nurse somewhere goes without. So there are all these kind of things. If I, if I could drive to my draft location, I think I might consider it more favorably than if I had to fly. But at this point, I think the fewer of us that get on airplanes, the better off we all are. 100% agree. And for me, the calculus was Amtrak versus driving. And earlier in the week, I was planning on taking the train down. But now if I go at all, I'm going to you know pretty much drive to the front door of the hotel, hand the valet my car key, go in and draft and come back and get in my car and come home, which is, you know, it's a, it's a longer <laughs> drive. Than if I, it, it's a longer drive to do that than if I was drafting, you know, down the street with my buddies, but I'm trying to make it as much like that experience as possible and, you know, minimize the risk and, you know, pretty much cut the risk down to me and the valet driver, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and put the keys into a Ziploc bag before you give them to the valley as well, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll purell them for sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Ray. Well, whatever you decide to do this weekend, make sure you stay safe, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time after some more drafts are in the books. Yeah, boy, who knows what the landscape will look like then, right? Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Amen. Thanks, Ray. All right, we'll talk to you next week, Peter. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, we'll have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, and the three-minute warning coming up next. But BaseballHQ.com wants you to know about a couple of innovative new ways to get you in touch with your inner fantasy monster champion. The first is First Pitch Forums Online. 
Ray and I talked about that a minute ago. For the second straight year, BaseballHQ.com is inviting you to join Ron Chandler, Ray Murphy, Brent Hershey, and other HQ analysts for the third of three interactive one-hour webinar sessions. All you have to do is find the $19 you didn't spend stocking up on toilet paper, go to Baseball HQ, and sign up. Ron, Ray, Brandt, and those other analysts will have tons of draft insights for you. The secrets from this year's player pool, relievers who could be closing by June, some sluggers to worry about if the ball is dejuiced, some potential busts and profits, much, much more. Session 3 is coming up on Tuesday, March the 17th. That's St. Patrick's Day. So if you're Irish, in your blood or in your heart, come on out and swing the old metaphorical shillelagh with Ron O'Chandler, Brent O'Hershey, and Ray Murphy. Mind you, it's also the Ides of March, so if you're Julius Caesar, maybe stay off the internet. Watch your back. In addition to the live online Session 3 on Tuesday, you can also watch Session 2 on demand anytime you like, as many times as you like, and Session 3 itself will be available online a day after the live event, so you can binge watch the pair of them. First Pitch Forums Online, three hours of invaluable assets that will make the perfect capstone for your draft prep. And there is going to be drafting this year. I feel it in my bones. Session 3 coming up live on Tuesday, then Sessions 2 and 3 on demand. 19 bucks. How can you go wrong? First Pitch Forums online. Check them out at BaseballHQ.com. And as if that weren't enough, we also have a new subscription model, HQ Basics, for just $9.95. Strips everything down to just the HQ tools and info you can use to dominate your draft. The highlight, a brand new PDF cheat sheet for the game's most common scoring formats. HQ Basics also has access to two subscriber-only articles per week once baseball resumes and Baseball HQ gets back on normal publication schedules. But draft season is already underway, so don't wait. There's no better way to be prepared than with a subscription to the time-tested winning formulas at BaseballHQ.com. Draft prep season subscription and the new HQ Basics subscription, just $9.95. What are you waiting for? Get on over to BaseballHQ.com and subscribe today. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the three-minute warning. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your draft, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Atlanta third baseman outfielder Austin Riley. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Why should we be riled up about 23-year-old Atlanta Brave slugger Austin Riley? Let's start with the math. Austin Riley scored 41 runs in only 80 games for the Bravos in 2019, or roughly one run every other game. Okay, we know, taken over the course of a full Major League Baseball season, roughly 80 runs in 162 games is good, but not necessarily great. However... What if we told you that 18 of those 41 runs were the result of home runs? Do we have your attention now? Wow. That's right, slugger Austin Riley blasted 18 home runs in only 80 games, and 18, almost half, of his 41 runs scored were home runs. Not bad. To put those 18 home runs in 80 games in perspective... Didn't Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit 15 home runs in 123 games in 2019? Vlad Jr. also scored 52 runs in 123 games, compared with Austin Riley's previously mentioned 41 runs in 80 games. 
And you know how high Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going in drafts in 2020. Careful. Are we saying that you should consider drafting Austin Riley ahead of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in 2020? Absolutely not. Don't do that. Are we saying that Austin Riley might be a decent late-round value in 2020 drafts? Now you're getting the picture. But, full disclosure, Austin Riley bet at only 226 in 2019 compared with Vladimir Guerrero's Jr.'s 272, and Austin Riley struck out 108 times in 80 games. 108 times in 80 games, ouch! That's why Austin Riley, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. Still, Austin Riley is a long shot who hits long shots, including a 444-foot monster shot, according to MLB.com, off the Braves' spring trading scoreboard on March 3rd. And the power is real, according to Austin Riley's 2019 Linear Weighted Power Index of 153 on BaseballHQ.com, where 100 is league average, and we consider batters with a Linear Weighted Power Index of 150 or more to be among baseball's slugging elite. In addition, Austin Riley's 49% fly ball rate in 2019 and his 22% home run to fly ball rate in 2019 are certainly on the higher end of the power scale. And even though some of these numbers may point toward possible regression in 2020, Austin Riley did bat 288 with 15 home runs at Triple A Gwinnett in 2019 despite battling a knee injury. In other words, there's late-round value here when you consider drafting a Brave slugger, Austin Riley, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for the three-minute warning, my weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to continue my discussion of my no-starting-pitching approach for the Raz Slam Best Ball Draft. Last week I talked about the first part of my Raz Slam Best Ball strategy, ignore starting pitchers because they have potential scoring well below hitters and closers, and the discrepancy lasts throughout the draft. The other part of my strategy is gaming the scoring system itself. This NFBC Best Ball League has 42 player rosters, and each week the computer totes up the optimal scoring mix of 14 hitters following standard positional requirements and any 9 pitchers on the roster. Any nine pitchers, keep that in mind. I'm rostering 21 hitters with enough decent backups and multi-position players that the computer can assign the most possible points from each slot. For my 21 pitchers, my focus has been closers. There's no innings minimum in this league, and even a non-top-line closer like Hector Neris is going to outscore Clayton Kershaw, Trevor Bauer, Patrick Corbin, Charlie Morton, guys like that, but it's going to go rounds later. So starting in round 11, I grabbed six closers, beginning with Neris, and I've also grabbed proto-closers like Scott Oberg and Seth Lugo as we got into the reserve rounds. I've drafted some starters as well, but I'm not paying for them. I got Nate Pearson and Josh Lindblom. My theory is that all I need is enough pitching to let variants create enough decent performances. Not all at once, not every week, not every time out, just here and there. The list of starters last season who had 10 or more starts with 20 plus points is very long. Hyun Jin Ryu had 16 starts, Max Freed 12, 
Mike Miner, Merrill Kelly, 11 each. Homer Bailey had 11 starts with 20 points for heaven's sake. Caleb Smith, Mike Leak, Wade Miley, Dakota Hudson, Mike Fires, Jordan Lyles, Jose Quintana, Ronaldo Lopez, all of them had 10 or more starts over 20 points. And Quintana, Lopez, Kelly Miner, and others had at least four 30-point starts. All in the middle rounds, the later rounds, the end game, even in reserve. And that's not mentioning the closers. They pitch three or four times a week. A two-save week with one base runner, a couple of innings, maybe a strikeout or two starts at 17 points. Last year, starters in this year's top seven rounds only beat 17 points in a game half the time. And a three-save week, should you be so lucky, starts at 24 points. Whatever format we play, it's really important to think about the scoring rules. Most of the pitchers I just mentioned would probably kill a full-season fantasy team, but when you only have their good weeks, the huge natural variance makes lesser pitchers hugely valuable because sometimes they hit and they have very low prices. Daily fantasy players know what I'm talking about here. My Rotolab results so far, which count only the first 14 hitters I drafted plus the first nine pitchers, have me 1,300 points up on the field for the year and 3,100 points up on the team that drafted ace starters all through the top of the draft. And of course, this could all blow up in my face. But I really do think I'm onto something here, and I've given myself a solid chance. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I have my three-minute warning commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio on Friday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 13th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 12 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your three-minute warning commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, Apple Pods, wherever you catch your podcasts, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help new listeners find us, and more listeners means we can keep the podcast going strong. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout Expert interview. That's Doug Dennis on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Stay safe. We'll talk with you again on Tuesday, and so long for now. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.